The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Today's episode of the History of Literature is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com H-O-L. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. That's www.audibletrial.com H-O-L. would ascend the brightest heaven of invention. A kingdom for a stage. Princes to act. And monarchs to behold the swelling scene. Then should the warlike Harry, like himself, assume the port of Mars. And at his heels, leashed in like hounds, should famine, sword and fire crouch for employment. But pardon, gentles all, the flat, unraised spirits that have dared on this unworthy scaffold to bring forth so great an object. Can this cockpit hold the vasty fields of France? Or may we cram within this wooden O the very casks that did affright the air at Agincourt? Oh, pardon. And let us ciphers to this great account on your imaginary forces work. What is your thoughts that now must deck our kings? Carry them here and there, jumping all times, turning the accomplishment of many years into an hourglass. Or the witch supply, admit me, chorus to this history. Who, prologue-like, your humble patience pray, gently to hear, kindly to judge. Our play! Oh, there we go. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. We have a great show today. Shakespeare's Henry V. Here's what we're going to do. First, I'm going to quickly summarize the play in case you haven't seen it for a while. Then I'm going to talk about where it fits in Shakespeare's work. We'll focus a lot on the two films that it inspired, two of the best Shakespeare films ever, probably both in the top 10, certainly in the top 20, Laurence Olivier's 1944 version and Kenneth Branagh's 1989 version. We just heard a clip from that at the beginning. It was Derek Jacobi in Kenneth Branagh's version. The two films are very different. And they're different in interesting ways, and they point us toward our final topic. What does Shakespeare's Henry V tell us about the character of a king? And what does it tell us about the character of the people governed by such a king? What is this relationship between king and people? Where does power come from? What, if any, obligations come along with that power? Who rules us and why? And what does holding this power do to the individual who holds it? We'll jump from kings to presidents and talk a little about what Nixon's closest advisor called the weirdest day in the Nixon presidency. And we'll see how that can all be tied back to some of the themes that Shakespeare explored in Henry V. Okay, first, let's sell some fish. I'm Jack Wilson, host of the show. You can contact me at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, wilsonauthor at gmail.com getting some great emails from you people, and I love hearing them all. I love reading them all. I'm also findable at historyofliterature.com and facebook.com slash historyofliterature. Okay, now, guess what? We have some exciting news. Gar, what do we have for exciting news? <laughs> what was that? Was that you? Did you record yourself? Chimpanzees? Chimpanzees. Okay, no, I'm thinking more like a, 
a news theme. Don't we have a news theme? Something good for our breaking news here. How old? I could hear crackling. How old is that news theme? Anything else? Okay. I like it. What is this from? The 80s? You know how all those episodes I've been asking you to rate us and write iTunes reviews and so on and so forth and all that begging. Well, that's great. That's spectacular. But let's face it. It's begging, right? It's demeaning, humiliating. I'm just begging. Just begging. Isn't it more fun if I don't have to beg? And if you don't have to feel like you're being begged? Nietzsche said something about this. Here's the quote. Beggars should be abolished entirely. Verily, it is annoying to give to them and annoying not to give to them. End quote. Is that how I've made you feel? That's so funny. Abolish the beggars. <laughs> how, Friedrich? Who, who waves their magic wand and abolishes the beggars? I suppose a totalitarian dictator might be able to pull it off. Wouldn't that be a little more annoying? To live through a world where... Someone has that much power over humans, over any humans. Think it through, Zarathustra. Think it through. Okay, that was a bit of a tangent. The point is, I'm the ruler of this podcast. My power is absolute. Well, okay. I have Gar to contend with, one subject. But he's on board. He's going to help me abolish beggars. No more begging you to write a review on iTunes. Here's what we're going to do. I'm in possession of some fabulous prizes. Small prizes, but very cool, especially if you like books. If you write an iTunes review of the podcast, I'll send you one of these prizes. It's a beautiful literary postcard. I'll send them until they run out, and I have a lot, so don't worry. You'll get one, unless you're listening to this in the year 2050 or something, okay? But I'll send you one of these, which is so nice you could frame it. Really? And I'll send you a special note just for you on the back. Don't frame that side. Frame the picture. These are beautiful postcards. Trust me. And you won't know which one you're going to get. Maybe I'll select a few during the show. So, a two-step process to make this work. First, submit a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher. A nice one, hopefully. Something to help people find the show. Tell them what we're all about here at the History of Literature podcast, then send me an email at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. Tell me you wrote a review and give me an address where you'd like me to send your prize. Let's see if this works. No more begging. Okay, speaking of beggars, don't you sometimes feel like kings get to sit at the feast and the rest of us just get a few scraps? Do you? Are you a beggar like me? Isn't it better if you like the king? Somehow we have to all get along, right? Somehow we have to live in a society together. Hobbes tells us this. We go from a state of nature to some kind of government, some kind of collective. Otherwise, our lives will be solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. The collective we choose, the government that comes out of our longing for an improved life and our longing to make society function without us all killing one another over some handful of berries or something. The government must provide us with security and order, says Hobbes. Is that all they need to do? Do they need to inspire or be ordained somehow, granted the power? By what? By God? And if so, how is that power transferred? How is it bestowed? Does it come from the church? Or is it from the people? Is it from an election? Something else? And what if you are the king? How does that change you? How do you understand your duties? How do you accept that power? How do you define it? How do you know what the limits are? Maybe the limits are what you say they are. But what if you're asking men, and in today's world, men and women, what if you're asking them to go to war? What if you're taking new lands, declaring yourself the king of another country, a country that 
hasn't previously, pre, sorry, previously been under your rule? What if they don't even speak the same language? What if you're marrying another sovereign? And what if your people don't like you? What if they chafe under your rule? What if they want you dead? Are you still their king? How do you change their minds? Do you need to? Shakespeare is fascinated by the issue of succession. The fight to be king. The crown is an honor bestowed on an individual or grabbed by the individual and what it does to that person. Shakespeare would have enjoyed the miniseries The Crown, I think. Have you watched this yet? It's on Netflix. It's very enjoyable. The woman playing Queen Elizabeth is spectacular, and the whole series is very engaging. It's a Shakespearean sort of topic, but it's set in the 1950s, where Winston Churchill, the aging lion at the head of Parliament, the man who saved the Western world, now in the twilight of his career, he's helping the very young queen understand her role. Or maybe... She's helping him understand his. They both are dealing with power, with the adoration of the people, with the duty and obligations of having this power vested in your person. And so are those around them, seeing how that power affects them as well. It's an excellent show. Highly recommended. Okay. As I said, though, Shakespeare was obsessed with, or fascinated at least, by the issue of succession. Henry V is alone in the Shakespeare canon. It's the only history play that doesn't center on succession. Instead, it's about a king's leadership at the Battle of Agincourt, where the English troops, the few, the happy few, the band of brothers, seize victory against a superior French force. I mean, superior at least in terms of numbers. So an outnumbered but inspired group of Englishmen fighting An historic battle against the French. Is that enough drama to carry a play? Let's think about that for a moment. Seizing the crown, as in other Shakespeare plays, well, sure, there's drama inherent in that. Rivalries. Someone has it. Someone wants it. What will they do to get it? Will they succeed? And what will be the consequences? But a victory on the battlefield one that the audience knows will be won. How do you dramatize that? Can we see Shakespeare wrestling with that question? I think we can. Each of the play's five acts begins with a prologue, which all set the stage. And, as happens most famously in the first prologue, describes the challenge of mounting a battle scene in a humble theater. A wooden O, says Shakespeare. It's a nifty phrase that refers to the generally circular shape of the Globe Theater, which was made of wood. Wooden O. We heard this at the beginning, as Derek Jacobi delivered his monologue, the very first lines of the play, which has come to represent a description of live theater and that curious alchemy between playwright, actors, and audience. Oh, for a muse of fire, he says, that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention a kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. Then should the warlike Harry, like himself, assume the port of Mars, and at his heels, leashed in like hounds, should famine, sword, and fire crouch for employment. Beautiful. Oh, says Shakespeare, if only we could actually fly the audience to the fields of Agincourt, and instead of actors... We could have actual princes and soldiers and horses. We could show you Henry V himself striding around, motivating the troops, disguising himself at night before the battle. Instead, we have to sit here in this cockpit. Theaters like the Globe had their origins in gamecock fighting. That's where he gets that phrase. This humble wooden O with this unworthy scaffold, and we have to somehow cram the vasty fields of France into it. Of course, we can do that because that's what we do. But you need to imagine a lot here, too. Think when we talk of horses that you see them, Shakespeare says. And then he has this wonderful metaphor where he calls, he refers to the actors as zeros. Where he says, oh, pardon, since a crooked figure, 
And that he means a zero. Since a crooked figure may attest in little place a million. And let us ciphers to this great account on your imaginary forces work. Have you ever thought of things that way? That if a zero, a couple of zeros can mean, can be the difference between a hundred thousand and a million. That's how imagination works. You can watch some people dressed up, walking around a stage and imagine yourself in the middle of a battle. Now, Lawrence Olivier's version, I'm going to be talking a lot about these two films, the Kenneth Branagh version and the Lawrence Olivier version. Olivier takes a different approach. He starts the film in the Globe Theater itself. We see an Elizabethan audience and Elizabethan actors on stage trying to hold their attention. It's raucous and lively and very, very English. A reminder that this play is written by one of England's greatest heroes. Perhaps England has no greater hero. You can see where I'm going with this. It was 1944, and England needed a reminder of its past heroes. The film itself was requested of Olivier by Winston Churchill as a motivational tool for the British who were suffering through the Blitz and were sending their soldiers off to fight the Nazis. The spirit of this as a motivational tool suffuses the film. It drives many of Olivier's choices. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. Let's move from theatricality to our next main point, language. I don't need to state the obvious that Shakespeare had a genius for language, which comes through, even though his English is not quite our English. 400 years later, we can still marvel at phrases like, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. And the turning of the tide came. First came in Henry V. And give them great meals of beef and iron and steel. They will eat like wolves and fight like devils. <laughs> what a phrase. That's why Shakespeare is so seductive. Give them a good meal so they fight hard. That's what you, that's what you could say. <laughs> let's, let's give them a good meal tonight so they fight hard tomorrow. That's the point that it's making. I think they need a big meal so they'll be ready for battle. <laughs> That's how most of us talk. Instead, give them great meals of beef and iron and steel. They will eat like wolves and fight like devils. So much life and energy packed into those simple words. So vivid and yet not overdone. And when it comes to the famous speeches, such as the St. Crispin's Day speech, Shakespeare rises to the occasion. St. Crispin's Day was a holiday, happened to coincide with the day of the Battle of Agincourt. That's how it's used in the play, as the day that it will be remembered. It will be associated with the Battle of Agincourt. That's what Henry V is telling his troops. Listen to these words. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more, or close the wall up with our English dead. In peace there's nothing so becomes a man as modest stillness and humility. But when the blast of war blows in our ears, then imitate the action of the tiger. Stiffen the sinews, summon up the blood, disguise fair nature with hard-favored rage, then lend the eye a terrible aspect. Even the, the stillness gets a beautiful description. The hum of either army stilly sounds that the fixed sentinels almost receive the secret whispers of each other's watch. Fire answers fire, and through their paly flames each battle sees the other's umbered face. Steed threatens steed in high and boastful nays, piercing the knight's dull ear, and from the tents the armorers, accomplishing the knights with busy hammers, closing rivets up give dreadful note of preparation. Those beautiful phrases to capture the two armies in, in place, in position for the evening, getting ready for the next day's battle. The stilly sounds, the hum of either army's stilly sounds. Doesn't that capture the near silence of two armies at rest? and paley flames as their campfires are burning not too far apart. 
the umbered faces. I would never use those words in conversation. I would never say something stilly sounds or that there were paley flames or umbered faces, but I get exactly how it looks. It's almost like directions, cinematic directions. You could see this as a script. Actually, for umbered face, I'll confess that I thought that it meant a shadowy face, a face in shadows, because of umbered's proximity to the word ombra, which means shadow in Italian or ombre in French. Shadows through the pale fires playing across one's face. And it turns out that umbered refers to a pigment that's added to a face, a brown pigment that comes from clay brought from umbria, which people would put on as a disguise. But here we go. Shakespeare's using both. He combines the two. His audience knows that an umbered face is a brownish, stained face. And Shakespeare says, look, look at these soldiers at night by the fires. Don't their faces look like that too because of the shadows? Isn't that like shadows? And here's a word that I have, umbered, which actually comes from umbria. doesn't come from the origin for shadow, but it's so close. It's so close to the Latin word for shadow. Isn't that the perfect word to use? Shakespeare's full of this. Does this again and again and again. Makes us envision things with his evocative language. The point, as Joseph Conrad once said, is to make you see. Those beautiful lines about getting ready, pounding the armor into place, hearing the army on the other side doing the same knowing that you're just waiting for daylight, for the charge where you will kill or be killed. It's breathtaking. But language serves a different function in Henry V as well, as Shakespeare makes very clear. This is a kingdom being cobbled together, in a way, ruling over different peoples. That's up for grabs. And language is both the marker of the people's differences and the means by which those differences can be joined together. We've seen this difficulty throughout the history plays. It's in Richard II and in Henry IV, part one and part two. We see how Henry V, we see the issue of language and how it plays out for Henry V, who's claiming to be king over a unified kingdom. The multiplicity of peoples with different dialects and languages over which to lead. We see this in the soldier's pistol and Fluellen, who are learning each other's customs and language, and perhaps above all in the language lessons that Catherine has and the discussions that she and Henry V have. She's French, she's going to marry Harry, and she will need to come to terms with English. The scene is comic. She's learning some English words that sound body in French, but the connection is made. When Harry woos her, he speaks in prose, not verse. That's another language signifier. Verse is used at court, on the battlefield, when he's trying to blend in with his soldiers, or when he goes undercover the night before the battles, he speaks in prose. When he's at the tavern, and when he's wooing Kate, he's a plain king, a plain soldier, a fellow of plain and uncoined constancy, we're told. In other words, he's not counterfeit. He's a real human, a fellow who lives and breathes and recognizes humanity in others. All that's conveyed through language. Okay, it's time to talk about Henry V's character in this play. Audiences knew him from the earlier plays, the Henry IV plays as Shallow Hal. I'm I'm sorry, (laughs) couldn't resist. That's awful. Put that out of your minds. Not, (laughs) horrible, horrible. But he is shallow and capricious, more of a fun-loving, pleasure-seeking prince than a true king. The earlier plays are stolen by the great character of Falstaff, who has a claim as the greatest character in all of Shakespeare. Orson Welles certainly thought so, Harold Bloom as well. Falstaff is fat, vain, boastful, always drinking, always looking for a good time, cowardly when it sometimes matters, extremely charismatic. He's a scene-stealer. And in the earlier plays, Henry, called Hal then when he was younger, is amused by Falstaff. He's the life of the party. 
He teases and can be teased. But even in the earlier plays, we get a hint at what's coming. Hal is going to grow up. Falstaff can't grow up. He's fully formed with all his contradictions, his worldview, his philosophy of life. You couldn't change him, and you wouldn't want to. He's a force of nature. But we hear this chilling exchange in Henry IV, Part 1. Banish plump Jack, Falstaff asks, joking and pleading with his more powerful friend, the heir to the throne. Banish plump Jack and banish all the world. And Hal suddenly says, I do, I will. So, so cold. Such a, such a chilling moment. Imagine you're with your friends, you're, maybe your high school friends, you're out carousing one night. One guy, you know, is destined to be famous and important. The other guy, everyone knows he's going to be doomed. Drunk all his life, he's funny. Ultimately, a tragic fellow. But for now, they're best friends. And the drunkard says something like, Come on, we'll be friends forever. You'll be in the White House someday, and I'll be there as your chief of staff, making sure you have some fun now and then. Wouldn't the normal response be something like, Oh, Lord, have mercy on me. I need to distance myself from you or I'd never get elected. Or, man, if that happened, I'd be impeached so fast. Ha, 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 you're the drunk, fun-loving one, and I'm enjoying this for now, but ha, it's all good. Let's just have a good time. And instead, Hal is suddenly all business. I do. I will. That's all he says. I will banish you. I will. (laughs) Cold. And when he rejects Falstaff, as we hear in Henry V, Falstaff dies of a broken heart from the betrayal which broke his heart. And maybe maybe it's a betrayal. Many people reading the play have thought that, kind of blamed Henry V for what he did after he became king. I think Shakespeare's up to a little, something a little different here. I think he's emphasizing that kings have to set aside childish things if they are to lead. And if you yourself are an overgrown child, like Falstaff, then you have no place mucking around with a king. Kings lead. Kings have obligations. Kings have duty. Of course, you can't just come in, sweep the king away, head off to the alehouse. An entire nation depends on the king's actions, and the king needs to be mature and accept that responsibility, even if it means sometimes staining or erasing the memories of youth. The king betrays Falstaff, in a sense, but he's also saying, Nostalgia has no place for me here. It can't govern my actions. I can't become a wastrel just because I used to hang around one and find some enjoyment in it in my spare time. That was when I was trying to figure out the world learn what people are like, understand humanity, maybe have a little fun in the process in my youth. But now, I have soldiers I'm about to lead into battle who will die with the fate of the nation in the balance. Falstaff, you're a distraction to who I need to be. So, goodbye, plump Jack. It's tough to see, nevertheless. We ache for Falstaff and his broken heart. And Kenneth Branagh feels so strongly about Falstaff that he invents a flashback that shows us Falstaff, which isn't really in the play. It's a great loss for the theater to lose Falstaff. Luckily, Shakespeare resurrects him for another comedy, The Merry Wives of Windsor, because audiences demanded it. They, they needed more Falstaff. But for this play, for the history cycle, for Henry V, Falstaff is done. Martyred on the altar of Henry's growing into his role as king. We'll talk more about Henry V as a democratic king. He disguises himself in a cloak and mingles with the soldiers on the eve of battle, and here's how he describes himself. He's speaking in prose now, rather than uh, iambic pentameter, as is suitable for a common soldier rather than a king. He says, I think the king is but a man as I am. This is when he's in his disguise. 
I think the king is but a man as I am. The violet smells to him as it doth to me. The element shows to him as it doth to me. And his senses have but human conditions. His ceremonies laid by, in his nakedness he appears but a man. And though his affections are higher mounted than ours, yet when they stoop, they stoop with the like wing. Therefore, when he sees reason of fears as we do, his fears, out of doubt, be of the same relish as ours are. Yet in reason no man should possess him with any appearance of fear, lest he, by showing it, should dishearten his army. This is the difficulty laid out for us by the king himself here. How to be a king, a leader by divine right, and yet be a human being, all in one. Being afraid might be disastrous. So you are afraid. How can a human being not be afraid? But you must somehow rise above it, not let that part of you show, and yet remain human. Okay, so let's talk about the films. Two excellent film versions of Henry V, Kenneth Branagh's from 1989, Laurence Olivier's in 1944. Those two both directed and played the starring role. I'm not sure there's an equivalent in the canon of Shakespeare films. Two films this good about a single play. Maybe Macbeth, if you, especially if you count Kurosawa's Throne of Blood as a Macbeth film. There are some other good candidates. Send me an email if you have an idea for another. Maybe the Romeo and Juliet's. What are your two favorite Shakespeare films and do they compare to Henry V, I'll send you a history of literature thank you prize. Now that we, now that we have those, let's give them away. Okay, let's take a look at the differences in the Henry V films. They tell us a lot about the world in which they were made. Olivier's film was made during World War II. Winston Churchill himself suggested it to Olivier as a way of improving morale. The speeches, in particular, are like an English anthem a call to arms for soldiers in general, but particularly for the nation of England, or I guess one might say Britain, kind of a proto-Britain. Winston Churchill knew the power of rhetoric, the power of words. It was up to Olivier to get the staging and the acting and the scenery right. And it is very uplifting, this film. Battle scenes are bright and cheery, skies are blue, grass is bright green. The action is lively with hoppy music underneath it. Swords clash. Olivier emphasized the cavalry. It's very cinematic, but a little anachronistic. Why? Because horses are grand and heroic and a reminder to everyone of the great chivalric aspects of going off to war. The battles are concluded with cheering from onlookers. I don't want to say that it's glorifying war or rooting for it. But maybe Olivier's film helps people who have been dragged into war, who are compelled to duty by the horrors of the Nazi regime, and, and help them feel more confidence, more resolute, a greater sense of optimism than one might otherwise feel. If you're a parent sending off your son to fight the Germans, or if you yourself are that son on your way, this film might make you feel better about doing so. War happens. It has always happened. Sometimes it's necessary to endure the sacrifices of war. War must be faced with courage. And leaders are at the head of it all. Harry is on his horse, fighting mano a mano against a Frenchman, one-on-one. -on -one. An exemplary battle. It's exciting. It's not chaotic. It's a civilized form of war, and the good guy wins. Kenneth Branagh's film is different. War is hell. It's 1989 now. We've lived through Vietnam, and Great Britain has had the Falkland Islands war to wrestle with as a nation. Whatever side you're on, let's not forget that war is grim and grimy and brutal. The cinematography is bleak. The bright blues and greens are exchanged for slate gray skies and brown mud brown uniforms. It's still beautiful, but it's the beauty of shadows and muck. The battle music is terrifying. The soldiers, even Henry himself, have a moment of terror on their faces as they hear the thunderous footsteps of the approaching army. 
then resolution, then determination, then battle. Horses' hooves in mud, falling bodies, chaos. The king is in the midst of a violent hand-to-hand battle. Bodies are falling into the mud. Arrows swoop overhead, raining down with a horrible crunch as they find their target, human flesh. We see the combat up close, sword drawn across a throat, a clash of swords against opposing swords and armor, and Harry is in the center of the storm. It's exciting, but also a reminder. War may be necessary and heroic, but it's best avoided if possible. Here's the Battle of Agincourt in both scenes. There's no words here or very few words. Just listen to the music to hear the difference in the way the battle and the war is presented. Here's The first one is going to be Laurence Olivier, in his version, is the, the king fights on horseback. Exciting, inspiring. Kenneth Branagh's version is different. I'm going to let this play for a little while so you can hear the difference. This is the music you're going to hear is as they're waiting for the battle to begin. We see close ups of the soldiers' faces on the English side as they hear the hooves approaching. First, you're going to hear this menacing, ominous music, then you'll hear the, the silence and the far-off sounds of the horse's hooves getting louder and louder. And you'll see, well, you won't see, but the, the viewer sees the look on the face as the Englishmen get ready to move into battle. And finally, you'll hear the sounds of them leading the charge, Harry leading the charge, and arrows being fired off into the sky before they find their targets. You'll notice when we get to the actual battle scene, the music stops. All you hear is the sound of the horse's hooves and the swords against armor and the arrows. Let's listen. Come <laughs> on. 
leave it there. It's a beautiful movie. You really should go see it if you haven't seen it for a while or if you've never seen it. Now, these choices, choices driven by historical circumstances, the choices made by Olivier and Branagh, they, they affected the way that they used Shakespeare's play. They both made cuts and decisions that moved or nudged Shakespeare in the direction that they wanted to, to Shakespeare to go. On the other hand, on the one hand, that might sound uh, not that fair. On the other hand, Shakespeare was not necessarily historically accurate either. So here's how a historian writing for The Guardian puts it. Quote, in the real Battle of Agincourt, just after the English appeared to have won, Henry V notoriously ordered the mass slaughter of French prisoners, perhaps thousands of them. In the movie, in the Bronick movie, this doesn't happen. It does happen, however, in the play. At the end of Act 4, Scene 6, Henry says to the Duke of Exeter, The French have reinforced their scattered men, then every soldier kill his prisoners. Give the word through. Shakespeare played up the violence, bloodshed, and destruction of the French campaign, which his main historical source, Holinshed's Chronicles, did not. Neither Bronick's version nor Laurence Olivier's 1944 production included the murder of the French prisoners. Bronick's film is closer to the gritty Shakespearean version than Olivier's, though, and does include some of the nasty bits that Olivier cut. For example... Bronick delivers with venom the speech in Act 3, Scene 3, in which Henry announces to the citizens of Harfleur that they must surrender, or his soldiers will defile their daughters, murder their fathers, and impale their babies on pikes. Unlike the murder of the prisoners, these lines are from Shakespeare's imagination. So Olivier's film was not necessarily inaccurate for leaving them out, and Bronick's not necessarily accurate for keeping them in. Got that? Let's untangle that. Let's end quote. Let's, Olivier says, We English didn't necessarily defile daughters and pale babies on pikes. We're the good guys. And his serves his purpose of saying we're fighting Nazis. We're the forces of civilization. They're the barbarians. So I'm not going to put that in. Bronig doesn't have that baggage. He says, well, we know war is hell and soldiers must do some awful things. So even if it's not historically accurate, I'll ride with Shakespeare, who complicates the character. Harry here is a hero, but he's also brutal, and it doesn't seem unlike his character to have him feel these atrocious thoughts on the eve of a battle, announce them to, uh, to the citizens of Harfleur. Shakespeare is compulsively human, humanly complex, showing us all sides, making us see the whole picture. Why not give the film a hero with a bit of an edge as well? It's two approaches, and neither is wrong exactly. On the other hand, it's interesting, as our historian points out, that both films leave out Shakespeare's historically accurate scene where Henry orders the murder of the French prisoners. Why? For Olivier, I think it's clear. It's not glorious. It's not a, a glorious act. It might not be good for morale to show that side of Harry's character. For Bronick, though, I think it's, my guess is that it was just a bridge too far. Couldn't have his hero that vengeful and murderous. Needed the, the hero to carry the film. Would distort him to turn him into a monster. Can't pause for historical context. So he just leaves the lines out. Okay, the last major issue I want to discuss today is power. Where does power come from? Remember in Gilgamesh, episode one, it was easy to see how power was acquired. It was the biggest, toughest guy who became the leader. Why not? That guy can beat up anyone else. We see this running all the way through Beowulf, at least. Leader is chosen for being the, the most heroic Heroic fighter, the toughest kid on the block, the schoolyard writ large. But what about in more advanced societies, democracies? Say We don't have the divine rights of kings anymore, or at least most countries don't. But even in a constitutional democracy like America, the issue of power is not always clear. What if a president grabs power, takes it away from Congress, declares that he will no longer listen to judges, 
we can say that the Constitution prevents it. But what if the president says that the Constitution is just a piece of paper? And what if he just does what he wants and nobody stops him? What if he says that he was elected and that was the will of the people and the people are tired of elections, so he's going to cancel them? Let's say Congress is going to vote against it. So he has a, a hundred Congress people arrested on the day of the vote. The vote passes, the Supreme Court objects, and he has them arrested too, all in the name of the people. This is what I was elected to do, he says. And then people protest a bit, but eventually that dies down. He arrests them all, shoots a few, deports them, cracks down. The revolt fails. Is that power his now? Is it rightfully his? Seem that he has it. Is it legitimate? Doesn't seem to be, but what makes it not? Let's say he uses that new power to create a better society for everyone. Everyone is happier, healthier, safer, more educated, less hungry, less likely to be killed in war or blown up by terrorists. Does that legitimize the power grab? If the people are happier with what they have under the all-powerful leader, than they were under the regime where power was dispersed? There are fascinating questions we don't really have time to address in full. We can leave those to political scientists. But let's keep our central questions. What gives kings the right to rule? And what obligations, if any, does the right to rule bestow upon the ruler? And take a look at how these concerns play out in the mind and actions of Shakespeare's protagonist. Because for Shakespeare, this isn't about the right of kings. It's more about how that impacts the king's character, and how the king's character impacts the way he deals with that responsibility. First, there's a long scene early in the play where Harry is presented with the legal issues for war. He hears his his hereditary right to the lands in France, and he hears the French claims against him, the counter-arguments. He also hears the hypocrisy of the French counter-arguments. The scene I've always thought is somewhat agonizing in length as his ministers recite their way through these issues. None of this is particularly important, at least to me, not historically important. The importance here comes when Henry is presented with the gift from the French. Tennis balls. The French constantly underestimate Henry. They think of him as a drunkard, a playboy, someone not serious. And the tennis balls are the example of that. Say. We know what you did when you were young, with Falstaff out gallivanting around. We know you'd rather be playing tennis than actually leading your country. Henry is enraged. He cuts through the legal issues in a serious way. He shows how serious he is to fulfill his mission. Another interesting example of Henry's character comes when he deals with the traitors in his midst. There was a plot against him. A plot by some of his chief ministers. Harry brings in the conspirators and asks their advice about another issue. He says, Should I show mercy to another man who railed against me last night? I think maybe he was just drunk when he said it. Let's show him some mercy. And they say, No, 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 he should be beaten severely. You have to make an example of him. And he says, Instead, I I think I'll be merciful. Then he turns on his conspirators, he hands them a piece of paper that reveals that he's aware of their role in the conspiracy, and they they beg for mercy, they confess, they say, please, please. And he responds, no, no, you've advised me well, no mercy. That does seem like the way to go. And they are gone. Again, Henry V is set up against hypocrisy. He's the judge and the executioner. And isn't that what kings are? What they're forced to be? It's a heavy responsibility to be the king. Shakespeare wants us to know this. A long monologue is given to Henry describing that the the pros, the advantages of being king are not as great as they might appear. And the disadvantages are more severe. What good does it do you to have people bow when you walk in the room? Looks great attractive when you're not actually the king, but what good does it do you? On the other hand, imagine the heaviness 
of the responsibilities that come with being king. You sleep uneasy, wondering if you're doing the right thing, wondering if you're leading your country to disastrous defeat. How much better to be a shopkeeper, for example, and sleep well in your bed with your dreams untroubled. Maybe it's this uneasiness, the awesomeness of this responsibility, especially as he leads men toward certain death, that makes Hal dress as a commoner the night before the battle. He asks people what they think of the king he wants to know. And it's not just vanity or ego, but it's to rule them better. Shakespeare is quite clear about that. Even the days of drinking with Falstaff are given a purpose, a path forward, that those days have helped him understand the people that he's now leading. I had a discussion once with a friend. I was talking about a minister who had rotated through my parents' church when I was young and still going to church. He was young and charismatic, probably in his 20s. And one sermon in particular had stuck out to me, I who was probably about 10. He'd told an anecdote about being stranded on a boat with his wife, and another boat came to rescue them, and he had to decide, should I send my wife with these strangers, this group of men, or should I go with the strangers myself? and leave my wife here in this empty boat, abandoned on this lake? It's a question of trust. That was the point of the sermon. And I was telling my friend about this, about the the way that that stood out and how vivid it was that this young man in his 20s was confiding in us his fears and his his dilemma. And my friend just happened, my friend... Uh, happened to be Jewish, he just shook his head and he said, I like my rabbis to be remote. Could have been a Catholic saying that. It's the same question and was addressed in the Vatican too. Do you want the Mass to be read in Latin, which only the elite understand, or in the language of the people? Is the Bible for everyone or is it to be interpreted for people? And is the crown to be remote and mysterious and admired from below? Is it some kind of fairy tale ideal? Is it better if it's seen as something unreachable? Or should it be connected to the people? Should the royals get their hands dirty, visiting hospitals, understanding suffering, walking among the people in their land? The miniseries... The crown gets at this when they talk about, should the wedding be televised? Should the royal wedding be televised? Now, of course, it seems like there's no question that it should be. But still, those were questions to be wrestled with, and now the questions are just something different. How much of the royal's personal life should be revealed to the people? Does it help? There's some kind of balance to be struck here. Shakespeare shows us that this went all the way back to Henry V or earlier. In Shakespeare's imagination, he addressed those issues. There's a real danger for presidents as well as kings that the leaders end up in a kind of bubble. Advisors tell them what they want to hear. News appears to be biased, written by critics, not based in fact. Polls show the People have been manipulated. How does a leader successfully lead? What information must they gather? Do they need to be empathetic to understand the actual conditions to get feedback from actual people? Or should they make decisions and press forward with what they believe to be right, regardless of the polls, move an agenda without being swayed by what's in the minds of their subjects, which could be fickle or misguided? I want to close, or almost close, with an incredible story from history. We're going to shift from kings to presidents all the way to President Nixon. This is the story of the day Nixon visited war protesters at the Lincoln Memorial. He wasn't in disguise, as Harry was the night before battle, but he was a human being, desperate to understand, wanting to hear, wanting to speak, to try to persuade. It's a little unhinged, according to the people closest to him, according to the protesters. 
who had this conversation with him after he turned up. On the one hand, knowing who Nixon is, knowing his his deep desire to be understood, not astonishing at all. The White House is a a 10-minute walk from the Lincoln Memorial, a two-minute drive. On the other hand, presidents are so cloistered, so scheduled, so managed, that it still seems surreal that a president at four in the morning decided to go out and join a crowd unannounced. Here's how The Atlantic, an article in The Atlantic, described this event. This is from a 2015 article. Headline is, The Day Nixon Cracked. The article reads, The most bizarre moment of Richard Nixon's presidency happened on May 9, 1970, days after the Ohio National Guard killed four college students at Kent State University, and less than two weeks after the invasion of Cambodia began, the president took an impromptu late-night walk to the Lincoln Memorial with Manolo Sanchez, a White House valet. Nixon stumbled across dozens of student protesters at the site with whom he engaged in bizarre, rambling debate. Nixon's chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, would write in his diary hours after that Lincoln Memorial visit, quote, I am concerned about his condition, end quote, and note that Nixon's behavior that morning constituted, quote, the weirdest day so far, end quote. It's really a an astonishing moment. Tapes have emerged in which Nixon describes what happened and why. He woke up at 4 a.m. and started to see students gathering to protest. <laughs> Actually, Nixon, <laughs> he went to bed at 2.30, says he slept soundly until 4, then he <laughs> for an hour and a half. Then he woke up, started to see students gathering to protest, so he walked out there to tell them, that he knew how they felt because he had once thought Winston Churchill was a madman for criticizing Neville Chamberlain. Then he asked some women if they were married, how old they were, and he said it's okay. His daughter was that age. And she hadn't married yet either. He posed for photos. <laughs> people, the people there were utterly perplexed by what he was doing there. Here's the Atlantic again. Nixon was upset by the press he was receiving and how they had said that he was talking about nonsensical things. The Atlantic picks up. Even when I'm tired, I do not talk about nonsensical things, Nixon tersely declares on the recording. Instead, Nixon says that the dialogue with the students was an attempt to lift them a bit out of the miserable intellectual wasteland in which they now wander. Nixon recounts the lead up to his pre-dawn visit. As After finishing a press conference at 10 p.m. on May 8th, during which he faced tough questions about his decision to invade Cambodia and the campus furor it provoked, Nixon says he then fielded about 20 telephone calls from VIPs, went to bed at 2.15 a.m. and slept soundly until shortly after 4 a.m. Nixon doesn't mention it, but he made an unsolicited call to NBC reporter Nancy Dickerson at about 1 a.m. When a groggy Dickerson answered the phone, Nixon's first words were, This is Dick, and it took Dickerson a moment to realize just who this Dick was. In a brief, rambling conversation, Nixon complained about the way the previous night's press conference had gone and then asked Dickerson if she was attending White House church service that weekend. When Dickerson replied that she hadn't been invited, Nixon blurted with odd bravado, Oh, I can take care of that. As author Anthony Summers recounted in The Arrogance of Power, The Secret World of Richard Nixon, Dickerson later commented to her husband, That man has not been drinking, but I would feel better if he had been. <laughs> Dickerson thought that Nixon was suffering, sorry, Dickerson thought that Nixon was suffering a dislocation of personality. Nixon says he woke up shortly after 4 a.m., went into the Lincoln sitting room, and began listening to a record of Eugene Ormandy conducting a Rachmaninoff piece. Several already released tapes of Nixon phone conversations feature classical music blaring in the background at rock and roll volume. The loud music awakened White House valet Manolo Sanchez and as Nixon looked out the window at a small knot of people gathering outside on the National Mall. He asked his valet if he had ever been to the Lincoln Memorial at night. 
When Sanchez replied no, Nixon impulsively told him, get your clothes on, we'll go down to the Lincoln Memorial. To get the conversation going, Nixon continues, I asked how old they were, what they were studying, the usual questions. When several of the students said they attended Syracuse University, Nixon commented on how good the school's football team was. Far from being overawed, the students found Nixon's line of questioning downright bizarre. I hope it was because he was tired, but most of what he was saying was absurd. One of the Syracuse students told the press afterwards, Here we had come from a university that's completely uptight, on strike, and when we told him where we were from, he talked about the football team. Another student told the media, He didn't look anyone in the eyes. He was mumbling. When people asked him to speak up, he would boom one word and no more. As far as sentence structure, there was none. Nixon's account, not surprisingly, paints a very different picture. One of a gutsy, in-control leader willing to confront his critics while imparting hard-fought wisdom about what he calls matters of the spirit. H.R. Haldeman, who worked more closely with Nixon than anyone in the administration, concluded in his diary later that day, The Cambodia decision, the speech, the aftermath killings at Kent State, riots, press, etc., the press conference, the student confrontation at the Lincoln Memorial have all taken their toll, and he has had very little sleep for a long time, and his judgment, temper, and mood suffer badly as a result. There's a long way to go, and he's in no condition to weather it. Listening to Nixon describe his bizarre sojourn to the Lincoln Memorial is to hear a man who's already sold himself on an alternate, on an alternate version of reality. Having convinced himself of his version of the facts, all that remains is for him to win over the rest of the world. Richard Nixon had many flaws, but the one that brought him down in the end was his inability to distinguish the truth from what he wanted to be true. That's the end of the Atlantic article. It's fascinating in these times. Comparison with Shakespeare and Henry V. Our current president, the presidency of Richard Nixon. Fascinating to think about leadership and character. What the weight of power does to a person. Shakespeare died in 1616. He gave us a body of work like no other. An entire universe generated by his genius. It feels greedy to ask for more. And yet, one can't help wishing that he had lived another 400 years to a time when presidents as well as kings roamed the earth. And instead of King John, Richard II, Henry IV, parts 1 and 2, and Henry V, Henry VI, parts 1, 2, and 3, and Richard III, and Henry VIII, we could read his plays Lincoln and Andrew Jackson and Roosevelt I and Roosevelt II and Clinton and Nixon, which would be the greatest of all except perhaps for the one who's currently making his mark on history. Maybe with a Shakespeare writing his cycle of presidential histories, we wouldn't have the president we currently have. But whether or not Shakespeare could have prevented a President Trump, one thing seems certain. He'd know what to do with him. His muse of fire would be in full flame. <laughs> Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm a little exhausted. Didn't know we'd have so much time with Richard Nixon. It's an exhausting personality to be with during his twilight of his career. Well, that's okay. That's my job. Now, let's start moving some of these prizes. Simply sign up for the podcast and, oh yeah, I think I said you, I'd send you one if you submitted a review. Just... You don't have to go that far. Submit a review if you want, if you have time. If not, simply subscribe to the podcast or tell a friend to subscribe. Or just shoot me an email with your favorite book, maybe an idea for an episode. I'll ship these things out to you. They're nice little prizes. Okay? It's not the lottery or anything. Just something for a lover of literature to enjoy. From me, Jack Wilson. 
Email is jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com, J-A-C-K-E, wilsonauthor at gmail.com. As always, you can find more episodes at historyofliterature.com and facebook.com slash historyofliterature. Sign up for tweets at writerjack or book recommendations from our partner, Mike Palindrome, at Literature SC. I'm Jack Wilson. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>